Welcome. You are listening to the Fat and Furious podcast. In this podcast series, your host, Steve Bennett, father of seven, best-selling author and adventurer, will be joined by 23 of the world's most forward-thinking medical professionals, doctors, authors, and top nutritionists, where he'll share the truth behind living healthier and happier for longer. In today's podcast, I'm joined by YouTube sensation, author, engineer, Ida Cummins. Ida Cummins is slightly different to many of our guests. They're normally doctors or nutritionists. This gentleman started off as an engineer, but has applied his engineering background, his engineering brain, to the health industry, and my goodness, the outcomes have been fascinating. He's also written several books on the subject. He's all over YouTube. He's a great, great guy. Lots and lots of fun and so intelligent. I'm sure you're going to learn a lot from today's podcast. Ivor, it's been, uh, well, not too long since we last spoke. Um, let's start off with all your research that you've been doing around COVID. Um, um, uh, what's your latest thinking on vitamin C, vitamin D, with all the evidence you've been looking at? Right, well, okay, the latest hasn't changed much on vitamin D and COVID. So basically, the studies, human studies done in Indonesia, Philippines, the US one, and I forget what the other one was, large one, maybe India, but they all show pretty much that the vitamin D level in your blood should be over 30 nanograms. And they're showing if it's below 20 nanograms, you're maybe 10 times more severe outcome or death, which is a huge multiplier. And that's corrected for age, comorbidity, and sex in at least one study. So it looks consistent. So it's associational. It's not proof of cause, but it's quite powerful link. And one thing to clarify on that is a couple of more studies pulled from old data in the UK seem to show that it doesn't change your rate of infection or whether or not you get infected. So vitamin D being a high status in a healthier person, it may not really change the amount of uh, people who get infected. What it really affects is the severity of outcome. So that's an important distinction for people out there. And as I said before on vitamin D, it's not just because people took supplements. So a person who's high vitamin D in the 25 OHD test, they're above 30 nanogram. Those people are very different than people below 20 because they will have generally been eating more nutrient-dense foods like meat, fish, eggs, etc. They'll be lower insulin resistance, so they'll be less diabetic because that drives down your D blood test. Uh, they'll have lower inflammation and chronic inflammation from problem foods or other problems in their life and they'll have got higher sun exposure which is very healthy for nitric oxide and many other things that will affect your immune system so there's many reasons that a person who's above 30 will have much lower uh, problems with corona but they're not just due to whether or not they took supplements you know, the vitamin D in your blood, that test reflects your general health very powerfully. But the good news is anyone who's 18 on vitamin D, within a few weeks or certainly a month or two, you can jack it right up above 30 the right way. 
So you can eat more nutrient-dense meat, fish, eggs, and above-ground vegetables and all that stuff. You can lower your insulin resistance by doing that, lower your insulin and glucose. You can address inflammatory conditions, many of which are quite addressable. You can get more healthy sun or use the UV lamp. And you can take supplements, which in fairness can really assist in the short term to boost you. So it's all addressable within days, weeks, certainly months. You can change your whole physiology to be COVID resistant, shall we say. Well, that's really encouraging, really encouraging news. Um, Patrick Holford and many others are talking about that, you know, in China, uh, in Italy, uh, in certain hospitals in New York, uh, issuing a lot of vitamin C to patients. Uh, is, is that anything that, that you, you've seen in all your research? Yeah, I mean, I've seen a lot about it, but over the last few years and all my research, uh, vitamin C is very important to not be deficient in, scurvy. And it's very important not to be low on it because it's just an important vitamin. I'm not so well up, though, on the high-dose vitamin C having amazing results. It's being reported. It's less clear. It's less easy to get really solid data. So certainly there are many reports of people having great success with high-dose vitamin C. But I think in many cases they're also doing vitamin D. They're also doing you know, maybe magnesium and zinc or, you know, there's a lot of confusion because I think there's some confounding with doing a multi-factor intervention, seeing a benefit and then thinking it's mostly C. So it's just less clear to me, but a great idea to be very replete or very sufficient in vitamin C, eat all those vegetables and, you know, low sugar fruits that bring in vitamin C, that, that can't be a bad idea. Absolutely. Right, let's go back 101 to the very, very first conversation you and I have had at Real Food Rocks. Uh, you talked about, we talk, we'll talk about obesity, what drives obesity. In a moment, we'll come on to heart disease. But uh, you had a triad of things that we need to cut down if we want to lose our weight. You said it's all about uh, excessive refined carbs, excessive sugar, and excessive seed stroke vegetable oils. The floor is yours. Let's discuss those three things and how they play a part in, in, in poor health. Right. Well, yeah, that's the kind of Satan's triad, I used to call it. And that hasn't changed since 2012 when I started researching heavily into metabolism and health. So that's the one thing that stayed completely consistent. So sugars, excessive sugars, are a curse of the 20th century refined carbs similarly, and the seed oils, vegetable oils. From the 1915 or so, when Crisco brought in the hydrogenated plant seed fats and declared them to be fantastic, they took over the world very quickly. So basically, the sugar refined carb seed oils, many different mechanisms, but they promote insulin resistance, they promote inflammation, and if you eat a little of each, you might get away with it. But the problem is nowadays, the UK, over 50% of the population calories are now from ultra-processed foods. So that's more than half your calories are coming. And ultra-processed foods, the reason they're really bad is they're packed with sugar, refined carb, and seed oils because they're the cheapest ingredients in the universe. So it's understandable. So I think they're, they're the really bad things, and ultra-processed food brings them all together. And that's the kind of cornerstone of our diabetes and obesity epidemics and many other chronic diseases. So the sugars probably don't need much talk because kind of everyone now knows that free sugars in 
soft drinks or in foods are, are a bad thing. And the World Health Organization finally came out and said, you know, I think it was six teaspoons for an adult woman per day of extra sugars, which is half a can of soft drink. That's your whole 24 hours. And kids, three teaspoons, which is a quarter of a can of a soft drink, is your added sugars for the whole day. And that's the WHO, which we often criticize, but they, they got that right. Uh, the refined carbs are a disaster because at the moment in America, where we have good figures, we have 64% of adult Americans over 45 years old are now pre-diabetic or diabetic, which is type 2 diabetic. You know, you call it pre, that's confusing the issue. And if you measure them more carefully with insulin, it's probably three quarters, my doctors in the States would say, over 45 are essentially type 2 diabetic, even if they don't fail the test. So when you have three quarters of your population, and England might be 50%, but when huge tracts of your population have essential type 2 diabetes physiology, which means they're carbohydrate intolerant, then refined carbohydrates are pouring petrol on a disease fire. Right, so they're just a disaster. And the last one, the seed oils. I have a podcast out last week, I think, with Dr. Chris Kenobi, who has spent many years of his life studying the vegetable oils. It's an hour-long podcast, and we go through it all. But essentially, these are fake factory fats. They have been treated to high temperatures, pressures, deodorizing, bleaching, using you know sodium hydroxide or well other bleaching agents, and they're essentially damaged molecules that have no place in the human body. And one of the funny things you can say about them is we, a lot of us have seen the picture where you put processed food with these fake fats or margarine out in the Australian outback with a lump of butter beside, and the ants and the flies are all over the butter, and they completely ignore the other because they instinctively know that this is a chemical concoction. It doesn't register as proper, safe uh, fat molecules. So they're, they're a major problem for inflammation. They become incorporated into all your cells and your cell membranes, your 37 trillion cells. These fats can become part of the membranes and they're unstable, they oxidize easily. It, it, there's just so many reasons you should not eat fake factory fats, uh, especially when there's endless real fats to be eaten in real food, like meat, fish, eggs, and all the real foods, and olives, and avocado. And the oils that are crushed, like avocado oil or olive oil or coconut oil or lard from beef or uh, tallow, you know, or sorry, lard from, from pork or pigs and tallow from beef, all of these are real rendered, real fats simply extracted. So you shouldn't overuse free fats. You should eat them in the food. But if you're going to eat ones, eat ones that are real food fats and they are stable mono and saturated fats stable in your body. You only need tiny amounts of the omega-6 fats and you'll get those in any healthy diet. But if you take seed oils, you're racking up your omega-6 fats, tend to be pro-inflammatory, but I think the real problem is the factory fats rather than a little too much omega-6 from nuts and real foods. So I don't know if that's the summary, but that's the triad. You avoid that, you're 90% of the way there. And let me make sure I understand this. So, you know, we've got it wrong for so long when people talk about health, obsessing whether 
it's saturated, monounsaturated, saturated, polyunsaturated. We've, got, we, we've obsessed about those, but I think what you're saying is, don't worry about that so much. It's black and white. Is it real fat or is it fake fat? And that's the real problem, is making sure that we concentrate on real fats from nature and not fats that have been manufactured. That's the easy way, yeah. That's the rule of thumb for people who do not want to get into the science, do not want to count all their calories and check every label. If you eat real food, and even processed food can be pretty much real food. So, for instance, in Tesco locally, I think I mentioned before, you can get pre-packaged meals, very inexpensive, very convenient, and they've got meat and they've got some potato and they've got some vegetables. And when you look at the back of the label, they're just salt and pepper. So, I mean, that's packet food that, that's essentially real food. Um, the ultra-processed packed meals, you'll see the long list of ingredients, and you'll see the vegetable oil and seed oils. You'll see their carbohydrates and grains. They're the problem. So the easy thing for people is, don't worry about the fat. Just eat real food. I know it's a cliche, but if you eat meat, fish, eggs, olive, avocado, low-sugar fruits, you know, dark chocolate that's low-sugar, and, you know, above-ground vegetables, broccoli, cauliflower, meat and two veg. If you largely, most of your calories come from protein and nutrient-dense foods like those, real foods, you don't have to think about the fat. Just literally forget about the fat, uh, in a sense. And if you eat the right kind of low-carb, healthy diet, the fats will work themselves out, pretty much. And do you, do you find it sort of annoying or angry? Or does it make you, you furious, the fact that they call it vegetable oil, yet it's not really made of vegetables. It, it was sneaky, but it's understandable, right? They're selling a product, they sit in a, you know, in a meeting room way back, and they pick what way they're going to market it. And of course, they're, they're going to pick a healthy sounding thing. And, uh, and there you go. So I understand it's simply corporate marketing. Uh, there's no way they were going to choose the name that made it sound suspicious. Um, it's terrible because people do think of vegetables. They think of healthy five a day when they actually take these vegetable oils off the shelf. Uh, and that's a lie and that's deceptive and it's fraud. But you know, it's a reality. It's rooted now in the lexicon. I mean, vegetable oils are what everyone views those things to be. We use the term seed oils to be closer to the truth or factory fats to be really close. But 99.9% .9 of people, vegetable oil, the term is here to stay, unfortunately. So I often use both terms, vegetable oil, so they'll know what I'm talking about, and then seed oil, factory fats, so they'll know what it really is. That's really super advice. So if we break it down, we're trying to lose weight, there's those three things. Cut down your sugar intake, cut down your processed food, your high carbs, make sure your oils are real oils. And, and, and those, as far as the food elements concerned, are... Yeah, the 80-20 rule, isn't it? That's, that's probably 80% of what you need to be doing with your diet and then all the rest of the stuff on top. Yeah, essentially. And there's a couple of little caveats, things to note. If someone is overweight and they lose weight on a healthy, low-carb diet and they find they plateau, or say someone is, I don't know, let's say 100 kilograms and they get down to around 90 kilograms, but they're still plump. And then they find their weight's not dropping as much, even though they're still pretty much uh, doing the good stuff. Well, often that can be just simply physiology. It's unfortunate, but when your body senses that you don't have any dangerous uh, visceral fat and your body senses that things are healthy now, 
it can often, especially in middle-aged or postmenopausal women, but it can be lots of people, your body can basically start to resist losing more fat because the fat is not unhealthy. Mightn't like how it looks, but it's not unhealthy. And the body is holding on to it because it's sensing there could be a famine. You know, we've gone through a period of lower calories in the last six months. We sense that. Let's keep some of this healthy adipose tissue just in case. And the problem is because people want to look really slim, they want to push it lower, but evolution is saying, no, we like this. This is good. <laughs> and the little caveats are, you know, some things like cheeses can be very energy dense and very easy to eat a lot pretty quickly. So someone who's stuck in a plateau might consider pulling back on their cheeses if they really enjoy them. And they might also want to think more about doing a bit of intermittent fasting and pushing the lever or pushing things a little harder to overcome the body's resistance. Uh, are there any other trigger foods? Yeah, using oils, even if they're real oils, like real food oils, like we said, which are fine in terms of health, using a lot of oils brings in a lot of energy with no nutrients. So they're not problematic really, but they're not bringing in protein and other components. So you can end up getting a lot of energy that's essentially empty calories. So again, someone who's stuck on a plateau with weight loss, be careful with added oils, make sure it's real solid foods overwhelmingly, that they're high protein, nutrient dense foods. Be careful with the cheeses, you know, they can, they can be tricky with losing weight. So you may have to adapt things a little and tighten up. But there's a lot of great books like your own or Eat Rich, Live Long, which go through these pitfalls for people if they want to uh, to know all of the detail. Yeah. Yeah. Eat Rich, uh, Live Long, a uh, book that you uh, co-wrote, one of my all-time favorites. Recommend that to everybody I know because it, it, it's, it really goes into the science bit, but then also you know gives you some really healthy suggestions. So great book indeed. Now, um, we first met uh, and someone said to me, you know, you've spoken to Asim Alotra. He's got one outlook you know, from a cardiologist outlook on heart. Uh, Dr. Martin Kendrick, uh, obviously a brilliant doctor around that area. But they said, go and speak to Ivor because he has studied this from an engineering point of view. And I know watching your podcasts as I do, I try never to miss any of them. I know you keep going back to this and speaking to some amazing, amazing expert, experts. Start really simple on what we do as we age to try and avoid a heart attack. Start really simple, but then by all means build up some of your recent research with the brilliant, uh, uh, was it uh, Dr. Sir Bolton? Um, you know, we can go complicated at the end, but start 101 where with all the things you've learned about how to best avoid a heart attack, which certainly in men is still one of the, you know, the, the biggest problems we could face. Right, Whew. it's a big story, I'll try and compress it. Um, so, well, you, first you need to know, or in engineering we say, if you don't measure it, you can't understand it, or if you don't measure it, it don't get fixed. So it's very important that every person, especially at middle age, if they're middle risk, the risk algorithms try and guess whether you've got a heart disease problem and if you're at high risk. So you could, there's lots of calculators for risk. The problem is we know that they miss a huge amount of people and they get their risk category wrong. So the key thing to find out at middle age, if you're middle risk, and it's in the guidelines, is to get a quick five-minute calcium scan, few hundred uh, pounds. In fairness, you probably have to pay yourself 
but you'd pay it for a service for your car to make sure your brakes don't fail without even thinking. And this is much more important. So you get in the quick CT scan, you go in for five minutes, it's not like an MRI, you know, it's not claustrophobic, and two or three minutes scanning, and you get an x-ray of your heart's arteries. And this machine is able to see the calcium in your arteries. So you can be from anything at 55 years of age, you can come out with a zero, i.e. there's no calcium in your arteries, and that's called a 15-year warranty now, because the all-cause mortality for such a person is so relatively low, it's not zero, but it's so low, they often call it a warranty. Or you can come out with a score of 1,500, and you can have multiple vessel massive disease, even though the day before the scan they said you were fine, because your cholesterol and stuff looked okay. So that's important, you need to find out what, what your real risk today is. And then, of course, you've got to fix it. Because if you sleepwalk into a heart attack, not get a scan, not know, that calcium score will keep rising as your body brings in more and more calcium to shore up your tattered arteries. Like That's why the scan is so powerful, because when you've got the inflammatory disease of atherosclerosis that destroys your blood vessels and narrows them and gives you the heart attack, well, that's driven primarily from like type 2 diabetes and smoking and hypertension, all those things. It's an inflammatory disease destroying your arteries. But luckily, the body has a mechanism to try and stop them splitting. And that's bringing in calcium and creating bony structures. And then that shows up in the test and tells you how much disease you have. So you come out with a high score. The great news is if you sleepwalked ahead and didn't know about the high score, kept living your life the same, well, then that score would keep going up invisibly until you have a heart attack. And in 40% of cases, the first one's fatal. That's it. No going back. But if you find out you have a high score, that means you've missed something. You've done something wrong. That's okay. But if you address that, fix the root causes of vascular disease, I mentioned some of them, then what generally happens is the score stops rising. And that's simply because the body now no longer needs to bring in more and more calcium because the arteries are no longer burning. So the magic is to fix the root causes. You can take meds, they might help a little. I don't get into that much because compared to fixing the root causes, the meds are almost like, you know, yeah, whatever. But fixing the root causes. So we said earlier that 75% of American adults over 45, roughly, are essentially type 2 diabetic. That's the biggest driver of heart attacks in the world. No question. We have all the studies. It's the biggest driver. Hyperinsulinemia, type 2 diabetes. Hyperglycemia, high glucose, type 2 diabetes. High leptin and free fatty acids in your blood, type 2 diabetes. That's the big one. So the beauty of that one is, if you find out you have a high score, and you go and measure the right stuff, like your blood insulin levels, and you find out, whoa, or you get a blood glucose meter after your meals and find out you're going up above six and a half after meals, you find out, wow, I've got a huge root cause in my body, and I had no idea, but now I know. So what do you do? Well, you do what's proven. What's the best thing for a carbohydrate intolerance type disease, take away the carbohydrates, right? So Verta has shown with full-blown type 2 diabetics, 400 of them, one year, no calorie restriction, 60% became non-diabetic 
by the glucose measures, 94% came off their meds or reduced them. So Verta have published many other studies show you go on a healthy, nutrient-dense, low-carb diet, cut out the breads, the pastas, all the junk, and you can reverse that biggest root cause of heart disease. Right? So that's one thing. Any trace of diabetic dysfunction in your body, address that and remove it. Uh, the second thing is things like magnesium. So we know now from human randomized control trials in kidney patients who have high calcification, high disease, so kidney problem people, most of that is driven by diabetes too, okay, type two. But they went in with magnesium and they gave them supplement over two years. And essentially what happened was that on average, the people who got the magnesium, their calcium only went up 10% per year, which is actually very good because it's above 15% per year rise where the risk flies up. If you're below 15% per year increase in your calcium, you're actually nearly as safe as someone who has no increase at all, right, from the studies. So the magnesium-supplemented people only went up 10%, and the placebo, blinded, randomized, the placebo people went up 40% in calcium per wow. year. So magnesium alone in that one study was the difference between safe calcification increase and very dangerous, right? So magnesium is huge. 300 reactions in the body at least depend on it. Magnesium is crucial for hypertension reduction for just so many processes. And it's so easy to just get a supplement or eat magnesium-rich foods. So you'd add that to the low-carb to fix the diabetes. You'd also add, as Malcolm Kendrick, Dr. Kendrick has said many times, Potassium is a very important salt. I use potassium chloride. Uh, sodium chloride, standard salt, you need to make sure you're not too low on it. You know, it's been vilified, but actually low salt is a bad problem too. We've got the vegetable oils we mentioned. So you got to make sure you get rid of all those omega-6 factory fats because they're inflammatory and they'll drive disease. And you need to ideally boost your omega-3 healthy fats from real foods or good quality supplements. So bring up the omega-3 fish fats and bring right down the omega-6 fake fats from vegetable oils. So I'll be a double whammy. And remember, you're adding that to all the other stuff I said. So now you've got a synergy. You're taking a whole load of potential root causes that drove your disease. And you're not just fixing one, which might help a bit, like a med. You're going to fix them all. That's synergistic. Your body won't know what hit it. And that's what we hear all over the world, hundreds of thousands of low-carb people. Generally, they don't just do low-carb because they're in the know. So they do low-carb, they boost omega-3, they drop their fake fats, you know. They often supplement with magnesium or potassium, or maybe iodine, you know. So a lot of low-carb people are doing multiple interventions like I described, and that's what's transforming their health. Low-carb alone would help a lot, but they're doing multiple things, and they're all important. And you put them together, that's why we're hearing the stories of incredible changes to life. You know, mental acuity, getting rid of depression, getting rid of skin conditions and autoimmune conditions being much better. The reason we're hearing all of these apparently magical things is people are fixing a whole cluster of the primary drivers of modern chronic disease, and they're doing it all at once. 
So yeah, they're going to transform within months. And you can stop your calcium rising fast. And in our movie, extratimemovie.com, we take a hero with a 1,200 score in his late 50s, fit guy, sportsman, huge score, huge risk. And we follow him for a year. He gets a blood glucose meter. He takes all of what I did said. He does all of what I said. And at the end of the year, we rescan him. And we got a result that was basically unknown in medical history. Medical dogma says calcification remorselessly increases at a rate you can predict. That's a fact of life. We broke that. And we have people all over the world breaking that rule now. All over the world, people getting scores two years apart that are the same. Sometimes they're getting a lower score two years later. Cardiologists don't know what to say because they've never seen it. The reason they've never seen it is no one has ever, until the last couple of years, been actually doing a multi-factor fixing of the root causes. And it's only when you do that do you see calcium slowing down, stopping, and even slightly reversing. The reason they never saw it is they never gave people the technical knowledge of what the root causes were and how to fix them. That's all. It's as simple as that. Well, it's fascinating. And for those that have just listened to that and still a bit confused, what you're effectively saying is, because, you know, we should have calcium. And that's why you know, we were taught as kids, you should have lots and lots of milk. Whether that's right or not, we still don't know. But um, calcium is a good thing in the body. But what we're saying is when it's inside your arteries, the reason it's inside your arteries is like a sticking plaster, isn't it, on the endothelium, the, the inner lining of, of the, the artery walls. And it's like a sticking plaster whenever there's been a problem. So by measuring your CAC, your calcium within your arteries, what it's effectively doing is telling you how much damage has happened in the past. And while some people say, well, I don't, you shouldn't do that because that just frightens people. Actually, now we know there's so many things you can then do to get on the right path. It's a really, really important scan. Um, why do we have to pay for it ourselves? Uh, you know, the NHS have quite a lot of these machines. Why is this, is this not standard practice for you know, uh, uh, an MOT for all of us for free? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's kind of answered in the Widowmaker movie. So people can see a free version if they Google Widowmaker CAC. So two words, Widowmaker CAC. And Google that and you'll hit my free version on YouTube. And it goes through the history of the calcium scan discovery. And the problem is, in summary, every single aspect of profitable medical business had nothing to gain from the scan and quite a lot to lose. So the whole medical business essentially rejected it. So for 30 years, it's been said to doctors and professionals everywhere, now nah, we don't like that scan. And, and this now is the dogma throughout the medical professionals. Many people who go to get a scan now, the doctor says, I don't think that's useful. Now, the doctors don't know why they don't think that. They don't realize they've been brainwashed over 35 years. But a few of the examples of why the medical system hated it. The first one is that the Mayo Clinic had a team investigate the new technology. And the technical team investigated and said, wow, half the people who go into our invasive cath lab to get angiograms, half of those guys, we've they've got zero scores. There's no way they need to go in for the operation. We could save half those people going in. Wow. The management looked at it and said, well, 20% of our revenue is from the cat lab, or 30%, I think. And you're going to half our revenue? Sure, our profit would be gone for the whole hospital. So they basically squashed the project. So no way we're touching that. 
And the big pharmaceutical companies, companies uh, the inventor of the scan, Douglas Boyd, physicist, professor, I interviewed him in Las Vegas a few years ago. And he told me back in the day, we went to all the pharmaceutical companies and we said to them, hey, this technology can identify the people with big disease who need your drugs. So each of the companies examined it. They got in their numbers, guys, and they said, we're not interested because you're going to identify more healthy people who can come off our drugs than you are going to identify sick people who need our drugs. Uh, no thanks. So that was another big thing. Pharma is big against the scan. Another example, the scan disproves the cholesterol hypothesis. On it, now, I know that sounds like a big claim, but there are 20 human studies which have coronary calcification, the best measure of disease, and they also have measured LDL and cholesterol. And there's essentially no correlation between LDL or total cholesterol and the actual amount of disease in your arteries as given to us by the calcium scan, the best technology. So it's also known in the business that if you scanned a lot of people, you'd have a lot of problematic questions to ask because you'd have a load of people with low LDL coming up with enormous disease and you'd have a load of people with super high LDL coming up with zeros and that would be very awkward. So they like the fuzzy algorithms, you know, the fuzzy risk markers because that keeps everything opaque and confusing. But if you were scanning lots of people and saving lives, you begin to realize, hold on a minute, LDL has nothing to do with this practically. So there's another reason. So I could go on, but it just happens that this fantastic technology on every single level for pharma and the medical business, it only hurts profits and it never helps. So that's why it's just not known about not supported because there's been a campaign for 40 years to keep it under the carpet. Sad. Really sad. But it is out there. It is available. You've just got to ask the right question. Is there um, anywhere somebody can go to find out their nearest? Is it like a register of CAC scanning machines? Well, actually, yeah, there is, Steve. We, we have, I believe, the only one on ihda.ie up the top. There's a test centers tab. And if you scroll down, you get Ireland, then the UK, and then America with a map. And the UK, I think, is around 10 or 15, maybe 20 centers. And Rivers Hospital north of London seems to be the most inexpensive at around 250 sterling. And I believe they're the only one that may allow you to self-refer. So most of the time you need to go to your GP, not a cardiologist, but a GP needs to sign it off uh, because that's just the way it is in Ireland and England. So, but you get the centers there and you will, most people going to a GP, they'll be told you don't need that scan for the, for the reasons I said. Um, but you can just tell your GP, look, I know it's the best test for my future risk to tell me if I'm in trouble. And do you want to sign this short letter which says you take responsibility if I don't get this scan and I have an event within the next 10 years. Do you want to sign that? And of course, the answer is no, they'll give you the test. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, it's just fascinating and frustrating, isn't it, really, that you know, there's all these things out there. And uh, I mean, I mean you know, who should go for it? Well, I guess if you're diagnosed and your doctor says your LDL looks a bit high, I'm going to put you on statin. Well, maybe, you know, that's one instance where you might go, look, 
I've heard that it might not all be about LDL, even though that's what your doctors seem to think at the moment. Could I go for the scan? It might be, I guess, that you've had uh, coronary problems within your family before and you're worried about it. It might be that you're just doing everything you can to live healthy and happy for as long as you can for your kids. So the more you can discover, because when I first heard about this, I thought, it sounds great, but then I went and, and, and thought about it, spoke to a few friends, and I thought, well, the only problem is you're reporting on the past, and we don't really know what caused that problem, but effectively, we, now, having spoken to you today, we do know what's caused it. It's all the things you've mentioned. It's eating too much of the seed oils. It, it could be diabetes. It could be you're an ex-smoker. It could be uh, any of those things, and therefore, knowing the state of your arteries today doesn't predict that you're going to have a heart attack tomorrow. What it just says is, right, we've got to take a little bit more care of ourselves and do all the things that you've mentioned. Yeah, the intervention taking action is crucial because if you get an 800 today and you go, wow, well, okay, I know I was diabetic and all, so it's not too shocking. That's one thing, but the whole key is I'm 800 now. What will I be in two to three years' time? What am I going to do to make sure I'm still 800? Or, or 880 would be fine, you know, because it would be less than 15% per year. But how, how, what do I do now to fix everything? There'll also be people, though, even though it says the past, there'll be shock results. So I have people who had no real known cause in the past, but they came in with high scores. And there can be subtle reasons. There can be genetic type problems. They can still be addressed, but, you know, something you just didn't know about. You could be APOE4 genotype, like double E4, without getting into detail, who are very susceptible to inflammation and have to be much more careful what they eat. So you may discover you have a high score, you're surprised, and you could go and get a genetic test, and you could find out, oh, God, I'm double E4. And you could find out other blood measures, and homocysteine could be high. So that's why we say in engineering, if you don't measure it, you can't understand it, it can't be fixed. It's only when you know you're high, and you're not sure why you're high, but now you know you're high, and now you investigate and take personal responsibility to find out why and start fixing lots of things and saving your own life. Yeah. But without the score, you think, oh, I'm low risk in the risk calculator. I'm probably fine. But, but you're not looking. If you're not looking, you don't know what's going on. I got a guy of 29 in America, and they wouldn't give him a scan. They said, you're too young. And he says, yeah, but my father died of a massive heart attack at 39, and I want to know what my story is. And they wouldn't give it to him. And he pushed and pushed, and he got a scan. 29 years old, right? vast majority should be zero at 29. You're young. 600. In the arteries of an 80-something-year-old at 29. Wow. Now, he investigated. He found out he had certain genetic problems like his father, which he addressed. He did get some medications because it's appropriate in an extreme case like that to take certain medications. But he also looked back and realized, well, you know, I was eating junk food. He's American for a long time. And he said, my sleep cycles were terrible. I had a bit of a wildlife. He said, I did use the smoke. So he took those things that he was still doing a little, but now with his high score, he eliminated them. He was motivated. So a high score is a motivation to research, to dig, to find out why you got that score, and then to address it. I mean, it's so empowering, you know? That's what I love about it. It's so empowering. And likewise... You're absolutely right, Steve. The latest guidelines are finally admitting for a middle-aged, middle-risk person with a very high LDL, you really need a calcium scan 
to decide whether you need medications or not. So we have one study that shows in UK units, an LDL of 5 millimoles is enormous, right? It's hypercholesterolemia. And that's like around 190 milligrams in the US. Massive LDL. Well, a calcification study showed that 62-year-olds on average, so they were plenty old, who had 190 or 5 LDL or higher, which is enormous, had almost no difference in amount of disease than the ordinary group compared against. So the high LDL on its own means almost nothing. But you could go on a drug for life because of the figure. That means almost nothing. When there's a quick scan there that can show the doc, I'm 59 years old, I've got a zero score. That's way more powerful information yeah. than even the risk calculator algorithm, never mind one LDL value. No way should I be on drugs. So there's huge power in this to get people off drugs that they don't need. And sometimes to get people on a mild dose of a drug that maybe, like my 29-year-old, makes sense. Yeah. And I suppose there's no danger of uh, somebody getting a very low score, a zero, and going the opposite way. Right, I'm going to treat myself really badly now because I've got to re because all the other things. And of course, further down the line, if you then say you might be a really healthy person, get a zero, and you go, you know what, I'm going to live life a little bit more now. But I guess most people wouldn't have that reaction because this is your score of where you're at now. And if you stop you know, messing about tomorrow, it could be totally different. Yeah, absolutely, Steve. This one gets brought up, but no, I don't. Look, there's going to be the rare person who does. But anyone who takes personal responsibility and wants to go and find out their degree of disease, any people like that, when they find out they have a zero, they'd be delighted. And sometimes I, I met an overweight Asian extraction man in Denver. He was 51. He was grossly obese. He had type 2 diabetes. He fixed it all eight months ago, and then he got a scan, and it was zero. So you can get these mad results too, that high-risk people sometimes have zeros. They're lucky. Their physiology is resistant to developing the problem. But overwhelmingly, people who go and get a scan to find out and take action for their, for their own health and, the, and their family, they're not the type of people when they get a zero to say, hey, I'm going to have some cigarettes or eat junk food because I might get away with it. They're just not. I don't know if there's anyone in that category. Yeah. And even if there is one or two in a thousand who would be like that, to be honest, that's free will. I mean, if they want to do this, it's stupid. But if they want to do it, I mean, yeah. how stop them? They, but it means nothing to the discussion of the value of the calcium scan. Those tiny, yeah. rare corner case people who are a bit silly. I, I'd say let them on. Yeah. So I just, I get it now. I really, really get it. We'll put a link to the website you've mentioned so people can find out where the various... Uh, centers are for the CAC. Uh, last time we, we just mentioned a bit of uh, insulin resistance uh, uh, caused by too much carbohydrates. Uh, last time we had a chat and I thought it was really really fascinating uh, how a lot of people now are developing leptin resistance. Would you like to explain what leptin is and why leptin resistance is also something we, we need to try and avoid? Right, leptin. Well, most people uh, who do know about insulin resistance and hyperinsulin and glucose, uh, you're right, they won't really know about leptin. And leptin is kind of mostly a fat cell released signaling molecule, but it's central to the whole human system. So think of insulin being crucial, leptin is just as crucial. And the beauty is for people that they don't have to worry too much about leptin because if you have high leptin, 
or leptin resistance, you'll generally overwhelmingly have high insulin and high insulin resistance. So they're so tied together that if you just go after insulin, you'll be going after leptin too. So that just that makes things easier. But for interest sake, leptin is a hormone mostly released from fat cells, but it's it's released in other places too. It's a very powerful signaler. It signals your brain that if you have plenty of fat built up, then there's higher leptin going to your brain saying, hey, we got plenty of fat so you can back off your appetite. So it's an appetite regulator. It regulates uh, many systems in the gut as well. It's also very important in the immune system. Leptin itself is a cytokine. So one of the reasons people with coronavirus who have very poor outcomes uh, do suffer is because their own immune system is overreacting. And you get a cytokine storm that attacks the virus like crazy bunch of guys with machine guns. Now, if you're leptin resistant or insulin resistant, that is much more likely to happen, this override of the immune system. So high leptin, that's a cytokine in itself. So leptin is very, very interacting with the immune system. So leptin resistance, insulin resistance, you're going to have much higher risk for a given viral dose infection that you get. And I did a, it does an interview with people who are interested in leptin. I did a few weeks ago with Dr. Ron Rosedale. It's episode 67 in my YouTube podcasts. And he goes through it all. And he's, he's a brilliant man, but also he's able to translate things to be not too complex. So I think people would be delighted watching that. And he explains it all. And he, 25 years ago, he was one of the first people, along with Dr. Michael Eads and others, to realize the crucial importance of insulin and leptin in human disease. So these are kind of pioneers. And, and to listen to them now explain how this is all relevant for corona too, it's just fascinating how everything has all come full circle. Do you, I, I put a hypothesis up in my very, very first book. I said, look, you know, leptin is a signal that we send to the brain, say, stop feeding me, I'm full. It's to stop us overeating. But leptin, so if you break down, you know, the food to the carbohydrates, the fat and the protein. And I put a hypothesis out that said, you know, when we eat lots of meat, we, we know we're full. Um, the, the leptin works brilliantly. When we have loads of protein, it works brilliantly. But it seems to have a fault around telling us we're full when we're eating lots of carbohydrates and that's why we overeat. My hypothesis went along the lines that, you know, fruit was only ever on the trees for two, three weeks a year. And therefore, if we ate one apple and we were full, then we would ne not get through the winter because, you know, we, we need to get put on some weight uh, before food becomes hard to find. So, so nature could force us to keep eating more and more and more apples and fruit so we can get fatter and fatter to get through the winter, more and more sugar. It sort of, the signaling doesn't work as well with carbohydrates. And therefore, once somebody's on that carbohydrate uh, wheel, the, what we call the carbo coaster, the signaling doesn't work as well with leptin and carbohydrates and maybe too much carbs eventually makes you leptin intolerant. Does, does that sort of strike a chord or am I off piece there? No, no, I'd agree totally, Steve, actually. Uh, yeah, that's exactly the problem that um, as one guy I interviewed, uh, I think it's Keen Mur Murphy, he said uh, the problem is winter never comes. So his phrase is don't eat for winter. So in autumn, yes, like bears, they voraciously eat all the berries. They actually become insulin resistant 
but they don't develop hypertension or any of the problems because it's nature. And we, if we only ate a lot of these fruits in the autumn, you know, we build up insulin resistance, leptin resistance in a good way. We build up fat, which would be a survival trait. It would actually make you survive where otherwise you would have died. So a huge evolutionary driver. The problem is now winter never comes. So now we're eating not only fruit, like five a day kind of rubbish, not only eating it too much in the autumn, but we're eating it all year round. And to add insult to injury, if we were eating the fruits all year round, the ones that were kind of available 200 years ago, there'd be one sin eating them all year round. But the fruits now have been bred for sweetness and bred for taste and bred for sugar. So they're way worse than the fruits from a couple of hundred years ago. So now like Synergy, you're doing a double whammy. You're eating something all year that you should be eating in season. And the nature of it has become way more sugary, vastly more. So double whammy. So yeah, it's, it's a big problem. You know, the safe thing is the same answer every time. Eat moderate amount of berry fruits that are low sugar, but they bring in antioxidants, vitamin C, all that jazz. Uh, but mostly eat meat, fish, eggs, avocado, olive, above ground vegetables, some potatoes maybe if you don't have an obesity or weight problem really. You know, with the skins, even better, get a bit more of the minerals. Eat a real foods diet that's low-carb tending uh, or keto if you really need to address problems. You've got to go hardcore low-carb. But the real food diet, and the only other thing to add is, you know, if you're going to cheat, just it, that's tough to control. Just make sure you're conscious. Little cheats here and there, they don't add up to more than a few percent of your calories in a week. You know, you can't ask people to be absolute zealots you know occasionally you're out in the sun the beach you know they're selling those ice cream cones you know from years ago there's probably seed oils in them you know they're not good but i mean you know just mostly overwhelmingly real food calories high protein good stuff and then occasionally if you can handle it occasionally you can indulge and the, the at this point actually steve i might just talk because i feel very strongly i used to be a smoker you know, a very small number of people can do the bad thing that's habit-forming and troublesome, that's addictive. A very small number of people can occasionally have a cigarette in a bar and not fall into the trap of ending up smoking a pack a day and back on their habit. Likewise, a smallish number of people, when they've turned to real food and given up all the junk and sugar and their taste for it's gone and now they're safe, very small number can occasionally indulge. But a lot of people, you know, it's a slippery slope. You make an exception here, you make an exception tomorrow. You kind of say, well, I made an exception yesterday, so I'll do it once more, but then I'm going to be good for a week. And often that, like cigarettes, can be the slippery slope to before you know it, you put on around seven pounds and your habit is back dabbling with the bad stuff. So it's tough, isn't it? Yeah. No, I was a smoker as well. And, uh, uh, I did an Alan Carr course to get off it, and the thing that resonated and stuck with, stuck with me forever was there's no such thing as just one cigarette. <laughs> you know, there is just no such thing as one cigarette. There's no such thing as one puff of one cigarette, you know. Then suddenly we're smoking because it tastes so vile. You think, well, I'm not going to get hooked again, but you do. There's no such thing uh, because there was some phrase, the last drink you, if you can remember your last drink, 
you know, then you're st- I can't remember the phrase, it was quite clever, but it was along those lines. One drink is impossible if you're truly addicted because when you take one, then a day or two later, where you haven't taken any in years, but you did take one, a day or two later, you're going to be able to say to yourself subconsciously, well, I had one anyway, so I'll just have one more. I kind of broke my fast and I did have one, but I'll just have one more and that'll be it. I tell you, a few weeks later, you're going to wake up under a bridge. And that's just the way it works, sadly, for many people. Yeah, and what we're starting to realize now that, that, that weight loss and you know, reversing diabetes type 2 uh, and really help people that are, that are severely overweight, it's more psychology than it is even having this a mass amount of knowledge, you know, because it, it is quite simple. And that's why my book was called Fat and Furious, because I was fat for, for, for 25 years. It's actually quite simple but to understand the facts. But my God, it's, different to, it's very difficult to, to change the psychology. The psychology is a huge part. Uh, so you're right. We know the solution in terms of what you put in your mouth, you know, and get a bit of exercise, whatever. But it's really what you eat, exactly as you say, Steve. But the, the psychology is tough. Uh, you know, the little, like Alan Carr with his anti-smoking book, very, very powerful stuff. And he recognized that there's a little monster and a big monster. And he was so correct when I read that book 15 years ago. It was incredible. The little monster is the niggle that comes from the nicotine addiction. It's actually not that powerful. And if you stop nicotine for a few days, it's actually mostly gone. But the big monster is your belief system that the cigarettes gave you something you needed for years. So once the big monster gets going, it's not really about the nicotine. It's about the belief I want I want to go back to when I used to eat that. I want to just do it once. Psychology. And it, it's really tough. But you know what I think is huge for people, and I've realized over the years, is support networks. So the person who goes alone, does the right thing, loses weight, and all their friends say that's a fad diet, they can sometimes fall off the wagon. But if they engage with the community, the low-carb community, you know, the high-fat community, whatever, Facebook groups, if they engage with the community, they've got all of this human support that was so important to us for for all millennia. And it makes a huge difference. So when they do actually cheat, they feel a bit guilty, but the next day they're back with the community. They don't have to say it, but they're kind of back with the community. That's support. But if they're on their own, you know, divide and conquer. That's how people fall. And for anybody wanting to to lose weight from what you learned from Alan Carr uh, and the psychology, you know, uh, and, and you know, now really putting all the jigsaw together as an engineer as you have, uh, that you know, it nearly all relates to eating real foods, cutting down the processed foods, cutting down the sugar, avoiding the seed oils. What, what's the message for those that are just starting out on that journey to regain control of their health? Right, well, yeah, do all those things and get your vitamins and minerals which are going to boost your health. Uh, in other ways and make you more robust and and feel better to help you with your you know your challenge because you're on a new route Uh, but the key thing is yeah do do use the support networks so there's many low carb groups there's dietdoctor.com the swedish site it's uh you sign up but there's a ton of free material without signing up or you can sign up for a month to try it so much support so many doctors lecturers specialists so many recipes so like something like dietdoctor.com, I always say to people, uh, because you've got you know commenters, you've got all the resources, and they'll, they'll bring you through it. 
they also show the low carb pitfalls the first few weeks. You know, you may get the keto flu, which is usually related to low salts. But, you know, they'll even tell you all the top 10 reasons people are challenged. And you can read it and you can hear or see people comment on their experience. And Facebook groups as well. I mean, there's low carb Facebook groups. So if you're starting off, get a great book like your book or, or Eat Rich, I think is a good book as well. And, and then have the book because that's nice to have the book and all the instructions, but also get involved in the groups and, you know, put out your own questions. If you are having challenges or you've reached a weight loss plateau, I mean, the Facebook groups are fantastic. A whole load of people around the world will jump in to help you. I mean, it's incredible. They don't know you from Adam, but they will jump in and say, hey, this is what happened to me. And it's free. You know, so get the support network as well as the science and the real food diet and the technical, what you need to do. Just try and make sure you link into those support networks. It's a family. And it's a family that once has your best interest at heart, genuinely. And, and, and that's, that, that's the problem, isn't it? Other than your own family, I was, I was trying to tell this to my kids the other day, other than your own family, there's nobody really wants you to get to 100, right? Nature didn't intend you to do that. Once you've got lost the ability to rear children, bring up children, nature's got no intention for you to live you know, past a certain age. Governments really, well, they'll say they, they do, but you know, once we become from a taxpayer to a tax burden, they don't want us to get to 100, you know, 60, 70, 80, that, 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 that's, that's fine. They can four years time get, you know, hopefully re-elected. You know, nobody really wants centenarians. And the only people that really do is your family and your uh, and, and people around you. But of course, if your family haven't learned all the things that you've just been preaching, then sometimes they will give you the wrong advice, even though they want you to be around. So you've kind of really, you're out there on your own, or like you say, join some of these uh, social groups that understand what it is we're all trying to achieve, because that, you know, that's the only place really you're going to get that support network. Yeah, I'd say exactly, yeah, exactly, Steve. And the thing is, the governments, as you say, someone just noted to me recently that people in their 80s in care homes, it's a huge cost to the government or to the family. Now, of course, they don't want people to die sooner. But at the very back of it all, the world runs on money and the actuaries and the budgets and the taxes. And it's just a reality, yeah. It's, they're not incentivized to try and get old people in care homes, high vitamin D, healthy sun exposure, nutrient-dense diets. You could do all that, but at the end of the day, you're just going to cost yourself millions. Uh, there, there's no incentive, so just, yeah, I agree. And, and the big point is the support networks. You're basically getting hold of a family you never had and a family that understands. And we all know, just as you said, people lose a load of weight on low carb, they feel great, they enthuse about it to their family, and their family actually pushes back. Oh, that's a fad diet. You're going to have a heart attack. Ironically, your own family can actually cause you or help you to fail. Not their fault, but they've been brainwashed too. Everyone's been brainwashed after 40 years of low-fat cholesterol nonsense. Even the doctors mostly still believe it. Yeah, you know what? I wrote my first book that my sister, way before I got into this, I must have been, let me think about, late 30s, early 40s. Uh, and my sister had read the Atkins book and put mom and dad on it and they were starting to see some really, really good signs and uh, I even said to my dad, are you looking great? He said, yep, your sister's put me on this Atkins thing, I'm eating loads of meat, loads of fat and I went, that's dangerous, that's... And, and I went mad at my sister, I went mad at my parents and now I'm annoyed with myself because they were on the road to recovery, <laughs> that's before my dad became diabetic, before my mom had Alzheimer's 
and they gave up because I said that's nonsense and yet they were they were showing signs of, 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 of becoming better and healthier so it just shows we're, we're, we're all can be easily brainwashed and uh, get the support network around you to understand what we're all trying to preach uh, and, and hopefully you know you go for that CAC scan if it's down there in the, in the smaller numbers great news but just keep doing what you're doing if it's up there in the bigger numbers and you're worried about it take control of your food your input what you're eating those fake oils you know, cut right down on those carbohydrates the sugars the packaged foods uh, and, and yeah and, and you know change your own outcomes exactly that's it and i'm not saying it's easy for everyone for a majority with a high score you just do what i said and before you know it you'll be on a great vector um, but there will be a minority and people often write to me who have persistent increasing score and often they're just missing a more subtle what we call in engineering a special cause it's not the general cause like low magnesium or or diabetic physiology you know there are some people that are double e4 genotype uh, they've got real challenges with specific foods causing inflammatory reactions they didn't even know about so yeah there will be a, a corner cases who will have a tougher job but it's the most important job of your life it's your life i mean if, if you don't take on this project you know you'll just like all the other people drop dead in five six years time leave your family behind there's no more important project even if it proves to be a tough one for you you know it's the biggest game of your life that's absolutely i'm gonna leave it on that because i think that was a, a great way to come to a close it's the most important project that you can undertake as a human being especially if you've got loved ones and children uh, or, or maybe you haven't, but maybe you've just got some really good friends, you know, they want you around, take control of your, your, your own journey, set your own project up, and as, as I've just said numerous times there, you can't uh, manage what you can't measure. So measure it, then you can manage it and change your outcome. That's been absolutely fascinating you having on the show, uh, either. Uh, thanks very much indeed, my friend. Great stuff, Steve. We'll circle back later. Thank you. Cheers, pal. Yeah. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, then why not subscribe to the full series so you can hear from all the incredible health professionals we spoke to. Before you go, though, visit Amazon today and pick up your copy of Fats and Furious by Steve Bennett. And as a thank you for being a subscriber, we'll even give you a third off. Simply use the discount code FFPODCAST and you'll get the full story featuring all 23 medical professionals.